physical places have a large amount of latent data. Pick any location on a map and think about all the questions that you could ask about that location. What businesses are at that location? How many cars pass through it? What's the soil composition? How much is the land on that location worth? The world of web-based information has become easy to query. We can use search engines like Google, as well as APIs like Diffbot and Clearbit. But the physical world is not so easy to query. We can't just go to a Wikipedia of the physical world. That does not exist. The physical world is not easy to query, but it's becoming easier. Location data as a service is a burgeoning field, with some vendors offering products for satellite data, foot traffic, and other specific location-based domains. SafeGraph is a company that provides location data as a service. SafeGraph datasets include data about businesses, patterns describing human movement, and geometric representations describing the shape and size of buildings. Ryan Fox Squire was one of the earliest engineers to join SafeGraph, and he works on data products for SafeGraph. He joins the show to talk about the engineering and strategy that goes into building a data-as-a-service company, and he also talks a little bit about how he made his way into the world of software. He does not exactly call himself an engineer. I would call him an engineer, but he's more of a product person, I suppose, he came from academia and learned data science tooling, and now he works on a variety of things at SafeGraph. Brian Fox Squire, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. Pleasure to be here. I've asked this question in some other episodes, but it's worth exploring again. We have computation as a service from AWS. Why don't we have data as a service? Yeah, so I think that we do more and more. I think it's a growing area. But I think that historically, it's been very difficult for companies to work with data in general and especially work with outside data. So I think one of the trends that I think is changing is that companies are getting better and better at working with data. They're getting better and better at collecting their own data and using their own data to guide their own decisions. But you know, even just in the last five years, the, the tools around that have grown immensely. And I think it's becoming easier and easier. You, know, you, you, you no longer need to have a giant team of data engineers and data scientists to extract sort of basic insights from data. Those people still have valuable skills and are still helpful in many cases. But there's just so many more tools and platforms now that make it easier to work with data that I think that is now creating more opportunity for there to be companies that exclusively all that they do is provide data sets for those users. And there are some paid data providers. There's also publicly available data providers. Can you break down the different types of data providers that are out there? Sure. Yeah. I mean, the way I would probably frame that is less about data providers and more like, what are the data sources? Some of those sources are companies. Um, some of those sources are organizations like governments. And some of those sources are, are not even any particular entity, right? They're just things that are created because of the internet and exist as byproducts on the internet, things that you can scrape from the internet or things that you know, are created through internet activity, things like that. So I think that there's a wide range of, of ways that one in theory could obtain data. I'm not sure if that's sort of getting at your question. Yeah. And I'd like to 
get further into that, but yeah. just surveying the different ways that you can get something like data as a service from the current world of providers. I did see a team at Google posted a list of data sets that are publicly available recently. I think Google actually has maybe an entire team that is working on data set aggregation. Is, do you know yeah. anything about that, the, what Google's data as a service stuff? Yeah, so so there are, there are cases. So one thing that Google has been doing more of recently is essentially publishing data sets that they've used historically that other people can use. So this is, I think, like a really big shift and, and a very important thing and a very exciting thing that Google can do because Google does have access to such a rich amount of data that is a sort of a unique data set. So they have been doing more efforts to sort of package and publish some of those data sets and just make them openly available. Um, that's, that's one effort. And I think there's been some cool, some, some cool progress there. Another thing that's recently happened at Google is that they've released this new product. I forget what it's called. It's called something like data sets or data search, but it's essentially like a Google search function for data sets. So, you know, you have traditional Google search for websites, you have Google image search, um, which, you know, today it's like hard to imagine a world without Google image search, but didn't always exist. And now they're trying to do a similar thing for data sets, which is more and more there's all these data sets being put onto the web, many of them by governments, many of them by nonprofits, many of them by, um, you know, academics. It is actually, you know, how do you find those data sets? If you, if you have a question and you want to get some type of data, it is hard to search for those things. And if you're Google's, you know, doing Google searches for those things, it's, it's not, those, those aren't well indexed. So Google's trying to sort of tackle that problem and say, Let's make a search that's designed specifically to find types of data, which I think is a hard problem, but ultimately just makes that more accessible for everyone. I think, I think, that's, I think that's super exciting. And I think there are just tons of free and publicly available data sets out there that people just can't find. So that, you know, that's a view into sort of the, the ways that Google's contributing to more and more access and availability of sort of open free data sets. When you consume those kinds of data sets, the Google searchable ones, do you have guarantees about the quality of the data? No. I mean, I think that's that's one of the challenges with the open data world is that, you know, in general, there aren't a lot of standards for how data should be organized or how data should be documented, as is always the case, which, a lot, you know, one of the challenges with open data sets is that it does take a lot of effort to make those data sets reliable and consistent and updated over time, like that, that's a lot of time that someone has to spend on doing that. So, and there are always going to be the people in the governments that are managing these data sets and doing a good job with those. But there's also going to be, you know, the random data set that gets published, but then is never updated or is published, but has various errors in it. And I think that, you know, the Google search approach right now is just to try to, let's just index all these things and make them searchable. They're not going to solve the problem of, do I know what I'm getting? And... Do I have insights into how this data was collected or, you know, what are the assumptions going on behind this data? Those are, I think, going to be continue to be challenges always for open data sets. At SafeGraph, you sell a location data set. Give me some examples of why location data is useful, some example applications. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, so SafeGraph is a data company. We're focused on trying to produce these high quality data sets about the physical world. And in particular, we're focused on understanding points of interest or places particularly commercial places of interest or places that consumers would go to spend time or money. So all of the hotels, all of the airports, all of the restaurants, all of the malls, all these things. I think there's a couple of reasons why places and, and, and focusing on those types of data is very interesting. One is that, right, 
lots of stuff happens in the physical world, right? Lots of things are happening and, and place or, you know, more generally space is a very powerful indexing key or join key for lots of other data sets, space and time. And in the physical world, those are sort of the most important, the most important dimensions to, to any type of data, right? So, so many types of data that are collected also could be associated with space or time. And we think that places is a particularly important dimension to be able to index and catalog on. So that, that's sort of general. I can give you some specific examples of how our places data is being used. Sure, yeah. Yeah, so when we think about like this, the typical SafeGraph customer, there's a couple different dimensions, I think, to uh, consider. One is sort of what are the different type of industries that are using the data? And then the other is what are the types of users or you know types of people that are actually using data in those industries? So in industries, SafeGraph has a fairly broad approach. We, we work in a lot of different types of industries. So for example, we, we do lots of work in like the retail real estate world. So companies that, right, you know, if you're Dairy Queen or Starbucks and you're thinking about opening a new location, that's a very important decision for you to make. And, you know, Starbucks, for example, has a team of people that all that they're doing is trying to figure out where should we open new Starbucks. So understanding the landscape of what are the other places in the world and lots of data about those places is very important for those types of decisions. Another area that we work in is sort of like digital marketing and advertising. So location-based advertising is sort of an increasingly interesting and popular and powerful dimension in the advertising world. A lot of location-based advertising is based on giving you triggers or giving you signals around that are that are location context dependent, right? So if, if you're if you're like Target, like the company, like the department, the store Target and you have the target app, and you have users that are in your target app, maybe you want to send them a particular coupon or trigger if that user goes close to a target or goes close to a Walmart, something like that. So there's a lot of powerful use cases in that space as well. And then the third, the third space that I would mention is what I would call like geospatial analytic tools. So we work with a lot of product company, a lot of software companies that what they do is they build geospatial analytic SaaS products. So, and, and those can vary across industries as well, but often, you know, the uniting theme is that for whatever reason, their users want to be able to visualize points of interest on a map or do analysis that is related to points of interest. So SafeGraph data ends up powering a lot of those functions in those software companies. So in that case, we're not necessarily working directly with the end user of that data. We're working with the company that's producing a product that is then used by the end user. The data that you sell, the way that it's consumed is via a data set. Somebody downloads a data set rather than having an API for requesting the location data. Why that decision? Why make the data available via a data set that people download rather than what I think would be a more conventional approach of the API? Yeah, so that's definitely an ongoing sort of product discussion at SafeGraph. And I think that in the future, there will be more and more ways to access SafeGraph data through APIs because there are just use cases that depend on that. In, in the beginning, we sort of made a decision to, you know, I think as often as the case at a startup company, right? Let's do the simplest thing we can to add value to our customers. And in the beginning, we realized that a lot of our customers were quite happy to get the data as a bulk download. Part of that is because many of our customers are, for example, t technology companies or, or they're building their own SaaS products and they're ultimately going to stand up the entire data set in their own infrastructure 
to interact with their products or interact with their production systems however they want. So they're, they're quite happy to essentially just be delivered a bunch of data through the cloud that they will download or, or, or stand up however they want. I think we do often discuss with customers their needs around think like more sort of real-time or on-demand querying through APIs. And I think just the way it's played out so far is our customers don't need that to get the value. But there's other types of customers that certainly will want that. And that's definitely something that Safegraph will do eventually. But it really has just been sort of a guided by what our customers are doing and what they care about. And it's turned out that most of them are quite happy to get the, the full download. The location data that you sell, there's a set of information about places, geometries, and patterns of foot traffic. Describe the types of data. Absolutely. So as I said, all of Sacraft data products are focused around this idea of points of interest, physical places in, in the world. So it's sort of the original data set to think about is what we call core places. That's all the sort of essential metadata about a place. So its name, its address, category information, open hours, things like that. It's basically business listing information. The second data set we have is called geometry. And this is more focused on geospatial data about those points of interest. So many customers don't just want to know where is, an, uh, where is a POI in ad address space, you know, US address space. They want to know where is that POI in geospatial coordinates terms. So, you know, a latitude, longitude for that, for that POI. We also have additional geospatial information besides that sort of building centroid. For example, we have building footprints, polygons, sort of two-dimensional projections of these businesses in lat-long coordinate space. So, and that's, that, that, so, so we know sort of precisely what is the actual footprint of this business occupying. We also have another big dimension of the geometry product is what we call spatial hierarchy information. So is this POI inside another POI? Is this a Starbucks that's inside a Target? Or is this a Subway that's inside a Costco? Or is this a business that's inside a mall? Sort of trying to understand the spatial relationships of these, of these places is another big dimension that, that we do in geometry. And then the final product called Patterns, uh, as you said, it's, it's, it's summarizing human, human movement or, or foot traffic around these places. And th that sort of provides a whole other rich dimension to understand what's going on with these places. So that data set includes things like how many people are coming to visit this place every month? What are the popular times of day that people are coming to visit this place? Uh, when, when people travel to visit this place, on average, how far are they traveling to get there? On average, what are the census areas of visitors to this place? Th things like that. So that data set obviously connects interestingly to the geometry and the core POI, the core places data, but sort of a, also has orthogonal information to it. And all those data sets, right, are all has sort of shared the same primary key, which is this unique place ID for, for places that Safegraph maintains. So some of our customers buy all three of those data sets and join them all together based on this unique place ID. Some customers only buy some of those data sets. It really depends on what they're doing. As you said, this patterns data has a population uh, of people that are anonymized. It's for, uh, I think the number I saw is 46 million anonymized mobile devices and the places that they visit. And then the data about individual user traffic is not revealed, but you're able to provide some detail about the users who are visiting these different places by providing the counts of different users from different census block groups. Can you explain what a census block group is and, and explain how that could be used to infer something from this anonymized data set? 
Yeah, totally. And these are like the, de- the details that I like get super excited about. So <laughs> happy to talk about this. So first of all, like what is a census block group? So a census block group is the finest grain uh, division of the United States that, that, that the U.S. Census Bureau maintains, right? So the U.S. Census Bureau divides the whole United States up into like sort of Russian doll, hierarchical, increasingly granular divisions, territory, right? We have states at the high level. We have counties. Within counties, you have different types of census areas called things like tracts or blocks or block groups. And the block group is the sort of highest resolution area that, that the census reports all of its data for. So those areas are on average going to hold something like a thousand households or something like that. So they're, they're relatively high resolution. And, you know, the census, we're doing another census in 2020 here, but the census tracks a huge amount of data in all of those areas, right? It's, it's this monumental service that the federal government does. So it's a very rich data set keyed on these census block group areas, um, these census block group. So the way that Safecraft works with that data is that, right, I think one of the, one of the things that is part of the value proposition of, of a company like Safegraph is that th- things like individual location data is a very sensitive type of data. And there's a lot of questions that you, can a- that you might want to ask about population dynamics or human movement that don't actually require having visibility or access to individual d- devices or individual people data. It, it's just, you know, if you want to know what's the most popular time of day that people visit a McDonald's, you just don't care about like individual visiting times. You only care about the aggregate visiting times. And so one of the things that Safegraph does is it tries to help manage all those privacy concerns on behalf of our customers so that some of the data that we work with is more sensitive than the data that we're sending to our customers. And that's part of the, sort of the value prop of what we're offering. So for example, right, one of the things that you mentioned is that for, 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 for any given point of interest, one thing that's very interesting is to, is to think about like on average, what is the sort of type of person visiting this place? And that's a question that you can answer in generic terms without having to discuss sort of individual privacy details. So we can say on average, you know, people that visit this McDonald's come from these types of census block areas. And therefore, on average, they're going to have these types of demographics, these types of household incomes, these types of jobs, things like that. So that data obviously is super rich and valuable. You know, if you're trying to decide where to open a McDonald's, you care a lot about what are the types of people that are doing commerce in this area or living near this area. And that's a big part of what I think is valuable about the patterns, the SafeGraph Patterns product. Yeah. One example I saw that resonated with me was, I think you did a study that Starbucks visits declined 6.8% in San Francisco after the open bathroom policy was implemented. Right. So yeah, so so the first thing to clarify about that is that so one of the things that Safegraph does is we actually donate a lot of data to academics who are doing economic research or economic development research or sociology research. Um, we just think that like those people are super smart, and part of the the big Safegraph vision and goal is we want to make data more accessible to everyone. So we select certain types of academic partners that we think are are very good, and then we'll donate data to them. And then they do their own independent research, and we're not actually involved in it at all. So this was a case of an academic doing an independent research study that, you know, we gave them data. They came back many months later, and they're like, hey, we found this really interesting thing. We're publishing it. We're like, okay, cool. They publish it. It gets picked up by the press. You know, there was, they, were, they, they talked about it on, like, uh, Bloomberg News and these things. So... So yeah, the story there was that briefly Starbucks had this sort of unfortunate PR incident regarding potential racial discrimination of some of its bathroom policies. Uh, It was a big news event. In response to that, Starbucks 
sort of clarified their bathroom policy, which which they call sort of a, a public place policy in which being super clear that anyone's welcome to use the bathroom, whether you're a customer or not. These academics, one of the things that they're interested in is this concept of what is the cost or value of these sort of public good services that sometimes corporations are offering, right? So like things like public restrooms, you could think of as a public good that a local government may or may not be meeting. If, if a corporation is doing that, in some sense, they're sort of the government sort of outsourced that public good to that company. And then the question is, how do you quantify the value of that public good that this company is now handling? And so it's a super interesting idea and perspective. And essentially, they were able to show ways in which this policy, which certainly has a, a high benefit for the public good in many ways, also had some cost to their business. And it's a very nuanced picture too, right? Because to do that, to do that study correctly, you, you don't want to just know what is the traffic, the foot traffic to Starbucks, you want to understand what are the right comparables, right? Because it's not just whether traffic at Starbucks went up or down, it's did it go up or down compared to its sort of relevant competitors in, in, in adjacent areas. And so those are the types of nuanced things that these academics were able to pull out using, using Safegraph data. And a more directly profitable example that you sent me recently was the ability to judge risk scores for insurance based off of the the data sets that you're generating. And you had this detailed blog post about how you could create a risk score based off of this location data and uh, use it to, to judge, if I'm an insurance company, how much should I charge my customers for fire insurance, for example. Can you give a little bit of color on that, just to give people an example of a business use case? Yeah, so, right, insurance, commercial insurance is obviously a massive industry, and it's a super data-driven procedure, right, where the, you know, the goal of the insurance company is to figure out what are the high-risk opportunities, what are the lowest-risk opportunities, and, and then to price their policies accordingly. The more accuracy the insurance company has about making those predictions, ultimately, the more profitable it can be because it can correctly, you know, risk-adjust its, its policies. So, there's many, many dimensions to figuring out an insurance policy. One of those dimensions, and, and you know, and many of those dimensions have to do with physical space and you know, li- literally what is the physical place that this business is in and what is, what is the context of that place? Is this a place that... So, so you know, I think everyone can understand if a business is located next to a river that floods often and that parcel has had flood many times, that's going to be a much higher risk opportunity for an insurance company to give flood insurance to. So there's many, many examples like that where your physical location has a lot of implications on your risk. This blog post was focused in particular on just one, one aspect of that, which is uh, fire risk and what's called co- co-tenancy risk. So co-tenancy risk is risk that's associated by the other types of businesses that are in your same building or in your adjacent vicinity. And so it's sort of the, you know, the sort of very, very simple proof of concept that we were showing in this blog post was, you know, all things equal, if you're insuring you know, against fire risk, you're going to have a lower fire risk if you're next to a clothing store than if you're next to, you know, an industrial kitchen or, or a bakery or something that has these, you know, very hot fires and ovens going all day long. And so you can, you can calculate that using Safegraph data because, and there's a couple of reasons, there's a couple of things you need to be able to do that. The first thing you need is you need to have very accurate category information because just knowing the name of a business or, or, or the address of a business is not sufficient to, to know is this a business that has fires like a kitchen, like a restaurant, or is this a business that is just sells clothing? So you need to have the accurate category information. 
And then you also need to have the accurate geospatial data about, you know, is this business that has a similar address number, right? Like 525 and 523, are those in the same building? Are those sharing a wall with two different buildings? Are those actually, there's a parking lot in between them? So that makes a big difference for your fire risk. And that's the kind of stuff that SafeGraph data, geospatial data is covering. So we sort of put together an example of showing how you could do a simple calculation and looked at some examples, high and low risk places that we found from that. I'd like to talk a little bit about the collection of the data sets and the cleaning of it. My understanding is that the data sets that you've collected at SafeGraph, there's no one weird trick to generating them. It's a combination of buying from some providers, getting from some free providers, like maybe the census, and also a matter of scraping the internet to, for example, if you have, well, you could, you could imagine all kinds, of, all kinds of things that you would want to scrape off the internet, maybe hours of operation, things like that. Tell me about the data collection process. Yeah, I mean, I think you're on the right track there, which is that it's, it's multifaceted and there's not just one sort of one solution or one source that we're using. You know, SafeGraph data is built from thousands and thousands of sources that we're, that we're ingesting. And uh, many of those sources are, are things that we're finding publicly available. Some of those sources are things that we're buying or, or are managed by governments like Census, right? Census is an incredible resource that's that te- technically open source. And so, yeah, we're using all those types of things. I think, so it's actually not, I mean, there's challenges, but it's not that hard to scrape the content of like 10,000 websites. I mean, there's some technical challenges there, but I think what's hard about it is taking all that raw data and combining it into a common schema. Even if you imagine, for example, scraping or crawling the store locator of, of a restaurant, what, you know, let's say a chain restaurant that has 10 locations in California, they list all those locations on their website. SafeGraph's going to go grab that information to know where those loca- to know the addresses for those locations. Um, that part's not hard. The hard part is, is that data structured <laughs> the same way or different than the other 999,000 websites that we're scraping? How do we make sure that we're getting the right information from that page? How do we do that in, in a programmatic and automatic way? Right? It's not scalable for us to sort of manually configure 10,000 different scrapers. So how do we build systems that can find that information programmatically, automatically, uh, bring it in, uh, handle all, you know, the millions of educations that we hit where, like you, you mentioned open hours, right? Like, so, so that's a good example. We scrape open hours from things like store locators. And it seems like that should be straightforward. But, but of course, you know, every store formats their, their store open hours differently. And then you have these, you know, all the cases you can imagine come up where suddenly in, in the field where they're supposed to be open hours, they just write coming soon exclamation point. Yeah, right. <laughs> or, you know, in the store, in the open hours, they say open till 2 a.m. And they don't have an open time. They just have this sort of closing time. <laughs> so there's like a million things like that, that that happen when you're doing this really at scale. And I think that's the hard part. That's where like the sort of engineering and, and machine learning comes in to handle those types of cases. Have you looked at DiffBot at all? I'm not sure if I'm familiar with DiffBot. DiffBot's cool. It's one of my, uh, gets the Software Engineering Daily Award for most underrated API. It's a system that takes unstructured web data and, and structures it. If, if, if nobody's, I don't know if you're on the scraping team or whatever, but if you haven't looked at DiffBot, you definitely should. Basically, like any, you know, if you take a, just a random web page uh, and you want to query that web page for all the for all the entities that are on the web page, like it uses a lot of natural language processing and figures out like the entities right. rather than having to scrape the HTML and parse the HTML and figure out what are the entities on this page, you can just use DiffBot, 
query it for the entities like oh there's places on this page maybe i'll query right. that a little bit right. deeper right that's one of the more interesting actually uh, da- uh what i would i would call it a data as a service company yeah that's interesting I, I know we have looked at a bunch of things like that we have looked at a bunch of things like that and i think one of the sort of surprising things to me that that i didn't expect when i was looking at a lot of these vendors is that i realized there's sort of two different types of like large-scale scraping that happens one is the type that we're doing which is we want to scrape a small amount of data from 10,000 web pages. <laughs> the other type is essentially the, the use case of I want to scrape all of Amazon's inventory or all of you know, United.com flights inventory, which is I want to scrape a huge amount of data from a single web page. And you know, I haven't examined all these solutions in detail, but one thing I found is that a lot of those solutions are better at those latter types of use cases where we're going to crawl you know, 10,000 pages from amazon.com and pull out all the product listings. But it was much harder to generalize those solutions to, I want to find the 10 restaurants on 10,000 web pages that all have sort of different formatted entities. So that's all to say that I think that there are definitely ways to automate this. That's some of the stuff that we're doing in-house. When, when we looked at vendors for this, we found that, you know, we thought we'd be able to outsource a lot of this, but in the end, we just ended up needing more control. And our error tolerance is also quite low. I think that that's another difference, I think, is that many use cases of scraping you don't care if you're getting some things wrong. Yeah. It, it depends on what you're doing. But yeah, yeah. at SafeGraph, we like really care a lot about getting every single thing right. That just makes it like a different type of problem in some ways. Definitely. Did, so did you work on the scraping infrastructure? Yeah. So I, I was working on it, especially in the beginning when we were first building it. We sort of went through a series of phases of our first, you know, often at SafeGraph, our first instinct is how can we outsource something? Because, you know, we have this, you know, one of our core values is this idea of like, how do you get leverage and you know, a big, a big part of that is outsourcing and, and vendors are great. And, and Oren's big on vendors and, and oh, yes. yeah. <laughs> so we talk a lot about vendors at SafeGraph. So in the beginning, we, we looked to outsource and we started and we, and we actually did a lot of outsourcing and we, we engaged in some contracts with some consultants and some outsourced technologies to do a lot of, to do a lot of scraping. And that was sort of phase one. And that was okay. But as we got deep into it, we just realized that there, there was a level of quality that was extremely hard for us to maintain with these outsourced vendor solutions. And so then we moved into phase two, which is, okay, how do we, how can we build a platform to enable this type of scraping internally while outsourcing some components of it? And so that's sort of, you know, that's sort of where we are now was trying to figure out, we don't want to have to write 10,000 scrapers that that's not scalable, but there are a lot of people out there that can write web scrapers. Can we create a platform or a framework that like makes it easier for us to work with them while also doing all the quality checks that we know we need? So I was, I was involved sort of on the product management side of, of working on that in the beginning, in the first year or so of that project. Is it costly or bandwidth intensive or anything to build a scraper or is it, is it cheap enough? In general, I think a single scraper is pretty cheap. What we didn't anticipate, or, you know, what we learned, what we didn't anticipate and what we learned was that the complexity really was just figuring out how to handle all of the edge cases that come up when you're doing this at a really large scale. So it, I think that was what was hard for us to anticipate in the beginning was, okay, well, you know, we did 10 of these ourselves. It seemed pretty straightforward. Like, let's see if we can outsource this. And then when we're doing thousands and thousands of them, there's just all these things come up. And, and so we, a big part of what we've been building is how do we automate the QA? How do we automate the um, evaluations? How do we provide feedback automatically to whoever actually is the person working on that scraper, configuring that scraper when we can't configure it automatically? So I think like doing a single one is cheap, but there's like an exponential difficulty that happens when you start doing many of them. And that's just been like sort of the sort of the surprising thing to me was that it wasn't like doing a thousand of them was a thousand times harder. It was like 
you know, doing a thousand times squared harder. <laughs> I, I don't know how much you want to get into it. I'm just very intrigued by the the scraping, engineering a scraper. So do you like scrape a bunch of information and then you have it all stored in a bunch of blob storage and then you clean it and then you actually turn it into canonical data? Or can you tell me anything about the, the cleaning process? Yeah, I can tell you a little bit. I mean, I think we've had a lot of different approaches on this. And I think in general, the approach that we're most in, invested in right now is is less of the let's sort of scrape the raw data and then and then push it into some sort of centralized information extraction and more like let's do the information extraction pretty close to the page to the to that individual scraper right if you, you could imagine the two spectrums of that one spectrum is I'm literally just going to scrape the entire web you know entire web page code and then throw it into some sort of thing that extracts information We've just found that it's we've had more success doing sort of the opposite end of the spectrum, which is let's try to get as targeted as possible collecting from the page directly, um, so that by the time the data is entering our system, it, there's already some level of structure to it. Uh, but the, and then we have a variety of systems that then handle all of the types of problems that come in from that stage. Open hours is like is a good example that we're talking about where we've at this point just built a lot of logic around the types of things that come up with open hours and the ways to correct it and what to do when there's no information, things like that. So, so yeah, I think that kind of answers, gets at the question a little bit. I think there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot of stuff we do post-ingest to the data. And, you know, that's where most of the work is actually happening. Like what kind of stuff happens there? Yeah, so another one of the big challenges of ingesting 10,000 data sources or whatever is that you have all these different systems giving you information and you have to figure out how do you join those and merge those together. And the sort of merging problem is, I think, sort of the, the big, important, but unsexy problem in data companies in general, which is that if I have three different data sources and data source A tells me there's a Starbucks at 545 Main Street and data source B tells me there's a Starbucks at 543 Main Street, we have to decide, like, are those two Starbuckses different? Or, or is that the same Starbucks that just had a typo somewhere? And this sort of entity resolution is a really hard problem when you're working with many, many different data sources because there's just no, there's no easy common join key to, to merge them all together. And we care a lot about getting the duplicates, removing the duplicates, being good about duplicates. If you're not, you know, I think the biggest issue you're going to have it with most data sets that you get are going to be duplicates because there's this problem of merging that's really hard. So we've built a lot of systems, including machine learning applications, to try to help us understand when we have these two sort of noisy data sets that are sort of fuzzy information about places how do we decide is that the same place or two different places? Because it's also not unheard of to have two Starbucks like across the street from each other. And so it turns out to be like a super complicated, hard problem to do, even for a human looking at it, let alone, you know, a machine. So that's like a big part of the post-processing that's happening during cleaning. We, there's also data imputation. So categories is a good example where it's hard to get good category information. And if you do get good category information, it's going to be it's some random system that whatever that source has invented to do categories. Right? C- categories is hard because there's not really a ground truth for like what a category is supposed to be. And so if you ingest data from many different sources, they might all use different category systems that they've invented, and you're trying to resolve that into some unified category system that's convenient for your users. And often category information is just missing completely. And so we do a lot of data imputation around categories where we're saying, okay, we didn't get any category information for this particular place. Let's use everything else we know about this place to make a good guess about what we think the category is, which is also like a very fun machine learning problem. And so, yeah, so those are, those are some examples of the types of transformation that we're doing to the data once we get it before we send it out. 
So the, the imputation thing, the categorization, that's like we might take what kind of information can you get mm-hmm, mm-hmm. that will allow you to, I mean, imagine you could do some kind of clustering yeah. to cluster businesses that you don't know. Is this a car Is this a car repair store? Is this a bakery? Right. Is this a pizza shop? You know, it's called like Tom's Slices or something. Right. You know, it's like, okay, Slices. Maybe it's a pizza store. Right. Maybe it's like a paper company or something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or a knife company. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So you're hitting the nail on the head of terms of why this is hard. And there's two, I guess, two things I can tell you about that. One is that often there is some sort of category information that we're getting from the source. For example, that might be that, you know, let's say that's a store locator that we've crawled, like walmart.com. We have gone to the, the, the trouble of essentially hand labeling all of these major, you know, thousands and thousands of what we call brands or corporate chains. So in that case, like that information is sort of already tagged with a category when it comes in. But there's other systems that we get sources, you know, other sources that we get data from where they have some sort of category information. It's just a different category system than what we what we want our customers to have. And so you have this like complicated, maybe it's a tagging system or maybe it's it's just some uni category system where they've given it some one category. So that could be a many-to-many mapping or it could be a one-to-many or a many-to-one mapping for going into our category system. And some of that is you could build heuristics to solve, but some of that you can also just say, okay, I, you know, the, the way we ultimately approach it is we're going to take all these different types of information about a place. Some of it might be category information for a different system. Some of it might be name information. We do a lot of that. We do a lot of name analysis to try to get, make a guess. There's other things you could do too, right? You could imagine like, I mean, you think about the stuff that you do if you were a human Googling this, where that place is located is also going to inform you something about that, about that place, right? Like if you see something that's in the middle of FIDI in San Francisco, it's probably not a car dealership, right? It's probably something else. And so there's like things like that, that not always, like there's going to be, there are some car dealerships in San Francisco, but things like that are, are rules that you can learn and make, make educated guesses about. So yeah, so there's a lot of different ways that we're pulling information in. And ultimately uh, we're trying to compile all these like small little signals to make a best guess. Very cool. And how do you know what to prioritize? So I know you've been with the company for a long time, so I'm sure you've like worn a lot of different hats. You have a pretty good understanding of what's going on throughout the company. So I can imagine a number of different states that the company might be in. So like I can imagine a state in which you've got these new data products and you're really trying to figure out how to just get them to customers so that you can start getting feedback. I think you've made it beyond that phase. And then the customers start to use them. They start to say, okay, we've got this look, we're using this location data, we're using it in this way. You interface with them closely. You get feedback um, that they want this additional field in the data set, maybe. You can kind of be, we can play customer success. You can iterate on the product just by virtue of being customer success for people who are consuming the location data. Eventually, you're going to reach a point where you'll probably expand into some other data category or some other product altogether. I'm very curious as to how close you are to that additional product or do you, is it like you, the close, the more you look at location data, the more depth you see to that problem. You just want to go deeper and deeper and deeper into it. I think it's a great question. And I think that I think it's often the case. There's always more depth than you realize there ever could be. So there, I think definitely we've discovered more and more depth around sort of the core the core products that we've been working on as we've as we've been doing it. But but also you know even even within the last few years, like the products that we've built have been influenced highly by that sort of customer feedback you're talking about, right? In in the beginning, 
we only really had one product, which was sort of a merge of what we call core places and geometry today. And then as we went on, we realized there were sort of distinct needs around core places versus geometry. We decided to split those into two different products, which, is, which are often bought together. The human movement stuff, the pattern stuff was something that we added a little bit later and took us a while to figure out the right way to do that. But I think there is a lot of, still a lot of opportunity in just sort of points of interest and places that we, that we have on our roadmap. One obvious way to expand that is right now we've mostly been focused on sort of what we describe, describe as these places of commerce, like these places where consumers can go and spend time and money. But there's a lot of places in the U.S. that aren't in that bucket. Things like office buildings, you know, like the SafeGraph office is currently not in the SafeGraph data set because it's not a place that consumers go and spend time or money. But there's a lot of reasons why you might want to know where offices are. What, you know, is this an office building or, or a residential building or a mixed-use building? There's things that we call sort of like industrial POI, which are like loading docks, factories, warehouses, things like that, that are currently aren't in the data set. So th- these are like, there are a lot of things like that that we could imagine trying to go out and find sources for and include. And some of our customers want some of those things. And there's new types of use cases that are opened up by doing that. And then there's another, there's another way that I think, there's also internationalization, which is, you know, sort of, I think, a cop out for <laughs> how to expand, but definitely something that's on our mind, right? Right, right now we're, mo- we're focused on North America and the United States and Canada. But there's lots of reasons why you want to know data about everywhere in the world. And that's something that SIGGRAPH ultimately wants to be able to do. And we talk about that a lot, too, in terms of what's the next country to launch in and when, when should we do that? You know, just in this last year, we added Canada. So that was new for us just in the last six or 12 months. So there's internationalization stuff. And then, then the final thing that I would add, I'm just giving you like a laundry list of our like product roadmap here. But the, the, the final thing I would add is that there's what I would put, put under the bucket of quote unquote integrations. So... Right. We talked earlier about mostly SafeGraph data is delivered as sort of a bulk download, and many of our customers are quite happy with that. But there's a lot of innovation and iteration we can do on sort of this delivery component of the data. And in some cases, that means delivering the data into other types of systems that people want to use it in. For example, like one of the largest, most prolific geospatial analytics software is this company called Esri. And a lot of people use Esri today for a variety of things, and a lot of people want to use SafeGraph data inside Esri. And so we've, we've actually done a lot of work to make it easier to use SafeGraph data inside Esri. Sometimes that's by partnering directly with Esri, and, and in fact now like some of SafeGraph data is natively in the Esri product. Some of that's also just helping figure out, is there anything we can do to make the data easier? You know, is there a different type of format or, or a different type of ingest delivery style that we can do that would make it easier to ingest it into these, these platforms? So I think there's a lot of stuff there too that we haven't done that we could do. So I think there's a lot of things to do sort of around this core value proposition of, of physical places. Uh, no, I think that's that's pretty fair. You know, you, people use Spark for ETL because it's more flexible. You know, ETL it from your data lake into your data warehouse. Maybe in some cases that data warehouse is Spark itself. It's not exactly a data warehouse, but right. can, can function as one. Right. That's sort of how we do it at SafeGraph today, right? Like, SafeGraph, our quote-unquote data warehouse, is essentially just AWS S3 that is organized in different ways. And then, you know, we're a small team and we're a fairly technical team, so we're quite, we're, we're quite comfortable to go in and write Spark jobs to query against that data. But I can imagine in the future, right, maybe we want to have people working with that data at SafeGraph that aren't data engineers or aren't super technical, and we want to have a way to, like, let them write, write, write SQL on that more easily, things like that. So... So yeah, I think I think that like there it depends on what the user of the data needs and like and how you're trying to deliver that. I think it also, you know, data warehouses you have to make you have to make decisions and assumptions about how you're structuring that data so that that determines how you can query it. 
And sometimes that's fine and that's what you want, but other times that's going to limit what the user can do. So those are all the considerations you have to think about when you're building that pipeline to put the data in. Do you use Databricks or Amazon? We Yeah, so we're heavy users of Amazon and, and Databricks. We're using Databricks every day, both for ad hoc things and data exploration, but also like building pipelines and, and running jobs and things like that. So yeah, we, we use Databricks a lot. The value from Databricks, that's like the fully integrated, you'd get a like a really nice front end to work with. Yeah, I think like there's, I would say there's two value propositions that I see in Databricks. One is like, it, it manages your database resources for you. So you don't have to have, you don't have to spend much time on sort of like the DevOpsy, like setting up, setting up resources, setting up servers. It's very easy to like click a button in Databricks, spin up a cluster and start working with it. So for me, like, especially that, you know, I don't have this data engineering background. That's super helpful to me because I don't have to be like mucking around in the AWS, like command line interface and like spinning up things and configuring these Spark cluster and things like that. So that, I think that's like the first thing is super valuable. And the second thing is it has this notebooking system that I think is just a very convenient way to interact with data and write little scripting functions and write little queries and things like that. That's, that's sort of this UI component. It's not a Jupyter notebook, but it's sort of, it feels a little bit like that. And that's just a very comfortable place to work if you're doing ad hoc analysis or even building pipeline, prototyping pipelines, things like that. As we begin to wrap up, before getting into software entrepreneurship, you were in academia, you were working on neuroscience. How was that shift out of academia? Yeah, so I was doing a PhD in neuroscience for a little while. So one thing that I realized is that what I liked the most about science was I liked working with data. I liked communicating about data. <laughs> I liked doing analysis. I liked designing experiments, thinking about experiments. But there was this one very important part that I did not enjoy, which was I didn't really like doing the experiments or collecting the data. I found that to be sort of this weird combination of like boring and stressful. <laughs> but I definitely, I definitely came up as a scientist and science is a big part of my identity because I just spent so much time working in that space in college and grad school. But what I realized was like these things that I like about science, the like working with data, designing experiments, communicating about data, there were a lot of opportunities to do that outside of academia. And increasingly so, companies cared a lot about data and were working with data. And you know, I, I knew very little about the real world <laughs> before I left academia. But I just had, you know, I, I was fortunate to living in the Bay Area and friends of friends that worked at tech companies and just got a sense that like there's cool stuff to do to do there. So that was sort of my transition out was had this vague idea that there would be interesting things to do in data. I also had an opportunity to work on a startup when I first left grad school, which was, which was you know, serendipitous. And, but it, yeah, it's really just been trying to figure it out as I go. And I think in some ways it's interesting to look back now because you realize that there are lots of things that are inefficient about how academia works and lots of things that can be improved in academia. And, and it is interesting to understand, to witness sort of the difference in the pacing and the difference in the way that you, know, you think about things. I think there's pros and cons. And like, you know, I've, I've written in the past about things that I miss about academia, but I'm super happy, like no regrets at all. Like it's, it's been like the right choice for me for sure. Neuroscience is really cool. I took a, a few classes that are in that realm and obviously a lot of it has not been figured out. Do you have any beliefs about neuroscience that uh, run contrary to popular opinion or maybe certain appreciations of the field that might come as surprising or, or novel to a listener who is not well-versed in neuroscience? Yeah, sure. I mean, I think it's fun. At SafeGraph, I actually, so we do an annual retreat every year at SafeGraph, and 
the last three years, I've given like a little neuroscience talk at every retreat, talking about like different, some, some, some topic in neuroscience that I think is interesting. Because I think neuroscience is like an inherently interesting thing to people, right? I think people understand that the brain is the super important part of who they are. It, it's, it's the super complex structure. So I think people are inherently interested in like, psychology and neuroscience for that reason. I think like in terms of like beliefs that I have that might be con- contrarian or whatever to, to, to neuroscience at large, I think the one thing I can say about that is that I think there's like this very hard question to understand you know, these things of things like what is consciousness? What is identity? What is free will? Like these are super hard problems that in general, like I don't think we have any good answers for today, but there's been a lot of philosophies time spent on those questions. And there's been some neurobiology time spent on those questions. And I think that in general, I think neuroscience and neurobiology still has like a big reckoning to do with, with how we are going to answer those types of questions. And I think some neurobiology in the past has sort of said, well, we're just not going to worry about that stuff. And I think to be fair, there's a lot of stuff to figure out first, you know, we have to understand how neurons work and how networks work and all these things. But I think, I think there is some sort of philosophical perspectives around what does it mean to be a conscious being? Do I have free will or not? That ultimately, you know, I, I do think neurobiology should be able to answer. And I'm not sure that we're like totally ready for to do that yet. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how that evolves across our lifetimes. And, and yeah, I mean, I think it's a super interesting area. To what extent do you think the human brain is a good model for the computer? I think it's pretty bad model for a computer. In general, like there's, I think, some very important distinctions to understand about the difference between a brain and a computer. And, and the biggest one is that is this idea of parallel processing versus serial processing. Because in general, computers are serial processors, and we've generally thought about computers as serial processors. Now, that's super powerful, right? You can do if you can do many, many computations very fast, doing them serially is fine, and that's why computers are so powerful. But that is not at all how the brain works. The brain is this massively parallel distributed processing machine. And I think in some ways, the computer can actually be a bad model for the brain and get in the way of understanding how the brain works because there's just so little about the brain that is serial. And when you have a conversation like this or, or out in the world, information streaming into your brain through many different senses, that information is being processed in a highly parallel way. And I think the ways in which ultimately that guides behavior and makes decisions is, is very complicated. And in our heads, it feels like a serial process. You know, it feels like I'm a, I'm a singular entity making serial decisions. But in reality, there's a lot of evidence that shows that there's not a lot of singularity to your behavior and, and experience. A lot of things are happening in parallel. A lot of stuff's happening unconsciously. And I think it's really hard to wrap your head around just how different that is from a serial processor. Ryan, thanks for coming on the show. Great talking to you. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me. 